Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 14. A lot was riding on the ability of statesmen to resolve the Eastern Crisis, as they met in Constantinople in late December 1876. Representatives from all the interested parties, Britain, France, Italy, Russia, Germany and Austria, had all gathered in what was viewed by some as the last chance for peace. The Ottomans continued to battle their Balkan minorities in proxy wars, despite the limited ceasefires that had been arranged, while the Russians ranged from openly belligerent to passively aggressive over the issue of the Balkan states, a status which was manipulated by the arguments of the Pan-Slavists. British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli feared above all that the Russian end goal remained the defeat of the Ottomans, the occupation of their territory, and the conquering of the eternal city of Constantinople. To prevent this, Disraeli had for years maintained the importance of opposing Russia or appeasing Russia depending on the circumstances. But he had nearly run out of diplomatic solutions by the time all powers seemed willing to agree to a conference to sort these issues out. To the Russians, and to their Chancellor, Alexander Gorchakov in particular, the conference was an attempt to get what Russia needed in diplomacy. If this diplomacy was unsuccessful, she would be forced to attack once the snows melted and spring offered better circumstances for a campaign. Another significant chancellor, the German Otto von Bismarck, viewed the conference with cynicism, but remained wary of the destabilizing effects a war in the region would have, not just on Europe, but the alliance system he had set in place. Lord Salisbury, Britain's representative at the conference, was of the opinion that Russia should be held back from acting belligerently, but that the Turks also had a responsibility to accede to certain terms, namely the implementation of much-needed reforms and the ceding of certain territories which would make the entire region much more stable and a far better and happier place. Salisbury had no time or patience for stubbornness or intransigence on the Ottoman part, 
and reasoned that, since the entire conference was taking place due to Ottoman misrule and brutality in the first place, it should be the Ottomans that gave the biggest piece of the pie. Disraeli, for his part, was worried that to pressure the Ottomans to too great an extent would cause their credibility, and thereafter their power, to collapse, and would lead to a disintegration of their empire which he so feared. The Turks should be coerced to accept reforms and limited relinquishing of authority in certain areas for the sake of fairness and demographic reasonableness, but nothing more. Disraeli had faith that the Turks would see sense, and that they would accept the need to implement changes, and not allow the issue to continue to such a point that the Russians would be given an excuse. Darby, the other member of our triumvirate, reasoned himself that Britain should not threaten the Turks with force, but should not prevent the Turks from being threatened by the Russians. This latter loophole could enable Britain to get what it wanted, and certainly to Salisbury it was the better option too. Russia desired the creation of a semi-independent Bulgaria to vindicate the years of bloodshed there and the atrocities which it included. This Bulgaria would be split in two, with the eastern half under Ottoman suzerainty and the western half to be semi-independent. Salisbury did not object to this demand of Russia's. In fact, he considered it as good as we could fairly expect, and he seemed to be settling into his position at the conference rather well. Even if the presence of the British ambassador to Turkey, Charles Elliot, was becoming something of a nuisance. Elliot seemed to have something of a chip on his shoulder, and once Salisbury arrived, he insisted that he be informed of any and all deliberations that Salisbury make. This was at least fair and in keeping with his duties as a British official, but when Elliot began to make noise that only he should be considered the true voice of British policy in the region, despite him barely having a place in the conference in the first place, Salisbury began to distance himself from Elliot. He had no time for the self-importance of a diplomat, who even Disraeli had loudly lambasted on occasion for his pomposity and even stupidity. Salisbury also found a like-minded rival, insofar as he found someone else at the conference that possessed a similar desire to actually get things done, in the form of Nikolai Ignatiev, the Russian ambassador to Turkey, who had been resident in Constantinople since 1864. Ignatiev often gets a bad rep from historians of the period, mainly because of his renowned dishonesty, sneakiness and ambition. Darby, for his part, could not stand the man, whom he called the most audacious of all the untruth-tellers to have ever walked this earth. Yet Salisbury seemed to have let Ignatiev's propensity to manipulate the situation wash over and even amuse him. In one instance, when all parties had agreed to draw lines upon a map of the Balkans, Salisbury could not help but notice that when they returned to the map, Ignatiev had increased the portion of land on the Russian side. Upon pointing this out to the Russian, Ignatiev responded good-naturedly, Your lordship is so quick, one can hide nothing from you. Yet we should not mistake this good-natured behaviour for mutual respect. Behind the scenes, Ignatiev hated the idea of a conference, and had spent the last decade weakening the diplomatic presence of his rivals in Constantinople in preparation for a major diplomatic strike. Were he successful in this venture, Ignatiev was confident that he could manipulate and rouse opinion in the Russian court to the extent that the Russians would provide a more direct response. Ignatiev's ambitions for the region would have resulted in nothing less than a complete overturning of the status quo, 
with the Russians in Constantinople, the Black Sea militarised and in Russian control. So it was to Salisbury's good fortune that he was warned of what to expect from the wily Russian, and that he was able to dish it out as well as he took it. Benjamin Disraeli had become a little concerned with the growing perception in some of Britain's elitist clubs that Salisbury was paving the way for Russia to enjoy far greater success at the conference than he should have. Disraeli, having gotten wind of these impressions, even turned against Salisbury for a time, warning Darby that Salisbury had not been sent to the conference to create an ideal existence for Turkish Christians. His concerns grew over news sent home by Salisbury that he had agreed with the Russians over a proposed armed force which would reside in Turkish territory and ensure that the proposed reforms within the Ottoman Empire were carried out. Disraeli was told by some of his elitist peers that they believed Salisbury had given himself over to Ignatiev, body and soul. But the Prime Minister was reminded by some in his cabinet, including Lord Derby, that the elitist clubs no longer represented the British majority opinion as they once had. The true measure of British public opinion, as Darby reminded him, is several degrees lower, and the tradesmen and people in this country would probably prefer pressure and bullying, even if done in alliance with Russia, than the continuation of the status quo in the Ottoman Empire. For this reason, Disraeli understood that he could only disapprove of Salisbury's policy to a certain extent, the Prime Minister still had to be watchful of the public mood, as well as the mood within his own cabinet. For the record, there was little dissent within Disraeli's cabinet as to the chosen British line. Some ministers had wanted him to go a little further in pressuring the Turks, an opinion akin to Salisbury, while others like Derby first and foremost wanted no direct confrontation. All had become remarkably agreeable when it came to the issue of allowing the Turks to be pressured into accepting the terms though, so long as this did not result in war and the Russians did the pressuring. Perhaps only Disraeli and a few others did not mind and even welcomed the prospect of a war between Russia and Turkey, because it could lead to the elimination of the atrocitarian movement and a chance for Britain to intervene militarily herself. But even this depended on the moods of the ministers. What this should demonstrate here is that there is little point in trying to define the 12 different cabinet ministers as belonging to a few distinct camps. While one of Disraeli's ministers was messaging Salisbury to complain about Disraeli's recklessness and how much he feared the Prime Minister's intentions for the future, Darby was sending Disraeli messages of support in the event that Disraeli was forced to resign, so it's kind of hard to predict it and classify everything. Resignation, which Darby predicted would be necessary for the Prime Minister if it transpired that the Cabinet would not support his chosen policy, for the moment remained unnecessary. But Darby was at least right with one of his predictions. Ever since the conference had begun, though he had welcomed the opportunities for mediation and peacemaking that it offered, the Foreign Secretary had been privately sceptical about his success. Darby did not believe that the true problem would come from the ambitious Russians or the stonewalling Germans. Instead, he perceived that the problem lay with the Ottomans themselves. On the very day that the Constantinople Conference was convened on the 23rd of December 1876, the Ottoman Empire drafted a brand new constitution. In many ways, it was a protest against the repeated breaches of Ottoman sovereignty and an answer to the Eastern question. 
let the Ottomans sort out the Ottoman problems with the new sultan, a constitution and a reformist urgency which would maintain its empire and secure Balkan stability. But the representatives at the conference in Constantinople did not want to hear this message. They talked about solutions to the Ottoman problems as if the Ottomans were not present, or even the issue of concern. For all his concern about not disrespecting the sovereignty of the Ottomans by threatening them with force, Disraeli never seemed to have grasped how insulting it must have been to the Turks to have to endure weeks of debate about the feasibility of their own empire, which everyone whispered was doomed to fail in the near future regardless of what was decided. Even had the new sultan wanted to appease the interested parties at the conference, Turkish national feeling and opinion could not allow it. The honour of the Ottoman Empire would not have been able to withstand the spectacle of having terms of reforms and peace dictated to them by a cabal of foreigners who collectively did not appreciate the Ottoman interests, and who individually possessed their own motives for Ottoman land. It only took a few days for the rejection of the representatives' terms at the conference to be learned of, and there was widespread outrage among them. As Salisbury noted to Disraeli on the 31st of December, 1876, All are exceedingly angry and disposed to look upon it as a deliberate insult. This it, in Salisbury's case, referred to the counter-proposals that the Turks had formulated once it became clear that they could not accept the conference terms. The problem with these counter-proposals from the Turks was that they skirted or avoided the most pressing of issues for all involved. Salisbury urged all taking part to try again and to pose their problems explicitly to the Turks with immediate effect. When this also failed, watered-down proposals were submitted and negotiated over the following fortnight in the hopes that something could be gained from the conference. But by the middle of January 1877, the Ottoman Grand Vizier, Midhat Pasha, declared the unilateral rejection of the conference's proposals and aims. The Constantinople Conference had officially been a failure. The object Disraeli had worked towards for months had led nowhere, and almost certainly made matters worse, since they seemed to demonstrate to the Russians that the use of diplomacy had come to an end. As far as Gorchikov was concerned, he had tried the diplomatic approach. The diplomacy had failed, and now war was necessary to acquire all that Russia required from the situation. Even before the conference had officially failed on the 18th of January, 1877, and everyone had made the journey home, on the 15th of that month, Gorchakov had been busy investing more stock into the earlier Reichstadt Agreement, which had been allowed to lapse over the previous summer. As if imbued by the ongoing failures of the conference, and certain of the war between Russia and Turkey which would result from this, the Russian Chancellor made the decision to cosy back up to the Austrians in an attempt to cover his flank. This time, not even the words of Bismarck could dissuade him from this course. Bismarck, for his part, was by now seeking option C in a closer partnership with the British, which Darby, as ever, cautiously regarded. Bismarck's great fear was that Russia and Austria would cooperate and squeeze Germany out of the equation, noting that for the past year the Germans had been unwilling to help, ease their respective concerns and had taken no part to help along the negotiations which followed. As if suddenly confronted by this danger, though this reality had been building for months alongside Bismarck's barely veiled disinterest and cynicism with regard 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. At the conference, Bismarck and his panic sought guarantees from London that if a coalition could form against Berlin, Disraeli and his cabinet would ensure that Britain remained a friendly neutral. To Bismarck, the failure of the Constantinople conference did not surprise him but it seemed to also awaken him to pursue a more active diplomacy in the region, where before the German response, owing to the German Chancellor's lack of interest in preserving Turkey, had been minimal. Bismarck seemed to fear above all that an Austro-Russian plan to defy international pleas and divvy up the Balkans between them was afoot, and that this would leave Germany out in the cold to face the possible wrath of a disenchanted Andrasy and a vengeful Gorchakov. Gorchakov reinforced the Reichstag agreement with a Budapest convention on the 15th of January, which essentially traded Austrian neutrality in the event of a war between Russia and Austria for Russian approval of Austrian plans to occupy and eventually annex Bosnia and Herzegovina. This latter point, annexing Bosnia and Herzegovina into the Habsburg Empire, an act which would be done as late as 1908 and would cause a crisis all of its own, was not finalised in official terms until a later agreement in March was signed. Within this March agreement, the Russians were also granted permission by Vienna to occupy Bessarabia along the Black Sea, which would pave the way towards the return of the region to the status quo before the Crimean War. Within this March agreement, Vienna and Petersburg also agreed to support one another if changes to what they had just agreed in Bosnia and Bessarabia were put to a conference. This appearance of Romanov-Habsburg solidarity did not bode well for Bismarck or Disraeli. Militarization of the Black Sea and a war against the Turks was surely only a matter of time, but some obstacles still stood in Gorchakov's way. One very notable obstacle in Gorchakov's way was the impact Bismarck was trying to make in London, as he began to see the need to make negotiations for a better deal with the British more concrete, perhaps to ensure German security but it was certainly not beyond the imagination of Bismarck that such diplomacy would send a stern message to Russia, and in particular Gorchakov. 
However, Bismarck would not be able to simply cozy up to the British and come back with an alliance. Darby had spent years cautiously watching what Bismarck had done in Europe, and in his mind, the prospect of an alliance with an individual who had done more to overturn the status quo in the past half-century than anyone else was not sound policy. Above all, though, once again, Darby did not trust Bismarck as far as he could throw him. I do not think Bismarck a person with whom it would be safe to enter into a political partnership, the British Foreign Secretary said. Darby would have known that in this belief he was supported by Disraeli, Salisbury and the Queen, as well as the Cabinet. Bismarck never did anything for nothing. If he was coming to Britain now, it was because he either wanted something or was in dire straits. Darby neither wanted to get drawn into another complex scheme, nor to back the losing horse. So he elected to stay out of whatever Bismarck was planning for the moment. While this was going on, Disraeli continued to take a high line with the question of a war between Turkey and Russia. On the 8th of February, he told the House of Lords that, What was at stake was not the mere amelioration of the lot of the Christians, but the existence of empires. And following this, on the 20th of that month, Disraeli added, The people of this country are deeply interested in the humanitarian and philanthropic considerations of the Eastern Question, but I'm very mistaken if there not be a deeper sentiment on the part of the people of this country, the determination to maintain the Empire of England. Disraeli's words serve as yet another example that he preferred the argument of interest over the argument of morality. They prove his public face of defiance in the face of an increasing Russian defiance would not change with the wind. It would stay stuck fast, despite rumours that the Austrians and Russians were plotting to take down Turkey together and not even Bismarck could stop them. Disraeli, to his credit, was not above pursuing other avenues to get the British security which he desired either. Following Darby's suggestion, he met with Ambassador Shuvalov only hours after making this speech to the Lords on the 20th of February to tell the Russian official that Britain possessed no hostile intentions towards Russia. Disraeli referred to his old attempts to appease the Russians in the summer of the previous year, wherein he had categorically agreed that the Ottoman Empire was not long for this world, but that at this moment in time, its disintegration would only cause problems. The European powers must stake their claims, and that way a world war would not follow the Ottoman collapse. In the meantime, while the plans for peacefully filling the power vacuum were being deliberated, the Turks could be given the opportunity to cooperate and fulfil their obligations by implementing their own reforms and pacifying their revolting populations. If Russia could show restraint and hold back from making the situation worse, then all the interested parties could surely get along. This was far from a desperate or naive proposal, and Disraeli would have known that he had a sympathetic ear in Ambassador Shuvalov, who was far less belligerent than either Gorchakov in Petersburg or Ignatiev in Constantinople. At this point, John Charmony reasons that generations of historians have critiqued Disraeli's approach here. A wealth of documentation consisting of the correspondence between Shuvalov, Gorchakov and Ignatiev exists today, and it shows above all the Russian court's determination to preserve the peace. Considering this treasure trove of documents, one can surely accuse Disraeli of acting in a wrong-headed manner. However, Charmley rightfully notes that it wasn't as though Disraeli had such correspondence in his lap. Furthermore, without such illuminating Russian messages, which lamented the financial strain that war would place on Russia, 
the unreadiness of her forces and the fears of British reprisals, Disraeli was forced to judge the behaviour Russia showed to the world, rather than the words she passed in private. Even within these messages, between the Russian Big Three, as I like to call them, Gorchakov did not rule war out, even with its dangers and complications. Shuvalov, for his part, lamented the inflexibility of the Dry Kaiserbund, on the basis that it offered Russia all the inconveniences of an alliance, with none of the benefits. When it came down to it, it was perhaps the Tsar that put it most accurately, capturing in the process the circumstances and rhetoric of the time. In the life of states, just as in that of private individuals, there are moments when one must forget all but the defence of his honour. Regardless of how well this line fits into one's thesis, examining the Code of Honour, to Gorchakov it meant that considerations of the damage the war would do should be put on the back burner. The popular policy, it seemed in Russia that spring, was one of armed aggression. To this end, Tsar Alexander II made the incredibly dumb decision to send Ignatiev to London in March 1877, with the aim of securing Britain in the event of a Russo-Turkish war, as had been done with the Austrians. Just as Shuvalov was attempting to get through to Derby by way of Derby's interconnected wife, the peaceful intentions Russia harboured, despite what he may have heard, along came the blustering and distrustful Ignatiev, who encapsulated everything the cabinet hated and saw represented by Russian policies of the past. Ignatiev was also upheld by some as the man who had held back Salisbury from achieving his true potential at the Constantinople Conference, so whatever the truth in this belief, he was derided for this aspect of his character too. With a lack of movement on the Turkish reform front, further demands came from Russia in mid-March 1877, which were soon debated by the cabinet. Charmley noted that, as usual, there were as many tangents of opinion as there were ministers, but that, as usual, only those of the triumvirate really mattered. Salisbury believed that if Britain did not support the latest Russian protocol, then London would be isolated and Russia would present herself as the only European power willing to actually achieve anything. So a similar situation to what Derby feared in the event that Britain rejected the Berlin Memorandum of 1875. Darby in this case believed that a watered-down version of the protocol should be sent, renaming it the London Protocol, which would explain in stark terms the reasons why Turkey should accept. Disraeli, most strikingly of all, took the onus off of Turkey, and instead insisted that the time had come to prepare the British people for a war with Russia. Such a forceful policy would make it clear to the Russians of the need to back down, and Turkey could then continue her reforms at her own pace just as Disraeli had assured Shuvalov they would back in February. Generally, the cabinet was in agreement that Russia should be offered a chance to honourably climb down from any aggressive rhetoric by urging some kind of reforms on the Ottomans, though no minister could agree how far this urging should go, and some, like Disraeli, remained wary of pressuring the Turks at all. Disraeli did manage to irk Darby, who finally seemed to be willing to criticise his own friend, if only in private. Darby dismissed Disraeli's blustering and belligerence as vanity, only to reason that this was a personal foible which formed part of Disraeli's character and could not be helped. Tensions were running high in the cabinet by the time the cabinet met again, without having come to a decision on the 23rd of March. Disraeli pushed on this day as far as he could, 
and even seemed to have alienated some ministers like Salisbury, whom Disraeli labelled as a crusader for arguing that the Turks should be abandoned. Eventually it was argued that the Ottomans should be asked to reform and disarm, but only if the Russians agreed to disarm and not forcefully pressure the Ottomans. The London Protocol was signed on the 31st of March and presented to the Ottomans on the 6th of April. It was a somewhat timid document, insofar as London seemed to genuinely desire Turkish reform, but without appearing to pressure the Turks into doing so. The protocol requested that the Turks implement reforms, but this basically amounted to a request that it hurry up and implement the reforms that it had formulated by itself on the 6th of February 1877, as part of its new constitution. The British didn't propose any new reforms, they just asked that the Turks do what they said they were going to do. In addition, Disraeli had added within this London Protocol a stipulation that requested Turkish disarmament, but only if the Russians showed willingness to disarm themselves. This meant that, even though the British had handed the protocol over and designed it themselves, the onus would be on Russia for this protocol to succeed. Although one might expect that such an onus would please the Turks and displease the Russians, it took only two days for the by now very sick of reform demands from foreign powers Ottomans to reject the deal. On the 9th of April 1877, London was told that their protocol had been rejected by the Turks. To Salisbury, this signified that all efforts for peace had failed. If the Ottomans were not willing to accept the most gentle recommendations that London could conceivably propose, then what hope did the Turks have for reforming by themselves? Darby also became mightily concerned that this final rejection would be the nail in the coffin of the peace negotiations. Disraeli, for his part, found it hard to reconcile this rejection with the need he still felt to make allowances for the Turks in the face of Russian pressure, but he certainly believed that unless a solution was developed soon, the Russians would see the rejection as an excuse to act. The Tsar had apparently managed to rouse Gorchakov behind a belligerent policy, though it is highly likely that the Tsar was as easily manipulated by the pan-Slavist rhetoric of his own court and other circles as his descendants would be. Gorchakov requested Romanian permission for Russian troops to enter their land only the day after their London Protocol had been rejected. The message was clear. To get to the Turks, Russia had to march through Romania, a Turkish vassal eager to separate itself from the Ottoman administration. Just how eager the Romanians were soon became clear. Barely a fortnight after Russian troops had entered her lands and with her defences insurmountable thanks to the great Russian presence of nearly 150,000 men, with more on the way, Romania declared its total independence from the Ottoman Empire on the 23rd of April. Were Disraeli and his ministers able to digest this information and the implications of such a development as yet another state split off from the Ottoman centre, they would almost certainly have lambasted Shuvalov for his dishonesty and called for yet another note to be sent to the interested parties. But the Russians were finished negotiating. The day after the Romanians declared independence, Russian soldiers poured across the newly constructed Eiffel Bridge over the River Prut, further increasing their presence in Romania and enabling more daring preparations to be made. Thus, later that evening on the 24th of April 1877, Russia declared war on the Ottoman Empire. The mask had come off at last. In spite of all the conferences, notes and posturing Disraeli had endured and made to prevent such an outcome, 
the war which could now result in the complete upending of the status quo had begun. Time would tell if it would realise the nightmares Disraeli had grappled with since his ministry began. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.